Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are beginning the last part of the book of Genesis, fully the last, the remainder of the book of Genesis is going to be the story of Yosef. So we have contained in Genesis these chapters that are about a, a fourth to a third of the book that is a novella, the novella of the story of Yosef. So we are uh, coming to this chapter after a bunch of other stuff has happened. Uh, and we have Yaakov deciding that he's going to settle. So remember, he's come back. He's come back from living with whom? Lavan. Lavan, his father-in-law, lovely guy. <laughs> so he, he, he journeys back. Uh, he has to make peace with his brother, Esav, who, of course, was murderous and rageful when, ya- uh, when Yaakov left. Yaakov has his wrestling match with the angel. His name is changed to Yisrael, the one who wrestles El, the one who wrestles God. And now he's going he's gonna to settle down. And so it should be, okay, he's got all his kids, right? He's figured out that part of his life. He's going to settle down. What a boring story that would be. Right, well, right? <laughs> so... As we know, of course, this is misleading by Yeshev Yaakov. Yaakov, settle down. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let's see what happens after Yaakov settles down. Bert? Now Jacob settled in the land where his father had sojourned, the land of Canaan. This, then, is the line of Jacob. At 17 years of age, Joseph tended the flocks with his brothers as a helper to the sons of his father's wives, Bilha and Silpah. And Joseph brought bad reports of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph best of all his sons, for he was the child of his old age, and he had made him an ornamented tunic. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of his brothers, they hated him so that they could not speak a friendly word to him. Okay. Um, So Yaakov settles. In contrast to Yaakov settling in Canaan, we're going to get the beginning of the story that eventually leads to what? Exodus. Yes. So we start with Yaakov settled, Vayeshev Yaakov in the land of Canaan. Should be overdone, boring now. And we get the story of Yosef, which is the beginning of the descent into Egypt. So what looks like it's starting to be he settles down in the promised land is absolutely not that. It's the beginning of the story that leads his entire clan to be uh, living in Egypt and then, of course, in Egyptian slavery, which sets up the story for the Exodus. All right. So Torah is playing with us here. Yeah. All right. It's gonna, this is the line of Jacob. So it list we line. get Ela told Dot Yaakov. These are the generations of Yaakov, and <laughs> it doesn't do it. nothing. Right? Normally we get a genealogy here, right? So we don't have any genealogy here. We had it already, but it's not repeated. So it's a little odd that Torah begins Ela told Dot. Here are the generations, and then nothing. So Torah continues to play with us right now. Just 
forgive me, but Jacob and Esau, what happened with them? Did they combine in this living? Were you here last week? <laughs> it's a good question. I can't yeah. remember. <laughs> okay, that's bad, George. That is really bad. All right, so, so you'll recall... Yaakov sent a bunch of gifts, yeah. right? right, and servants and whatever. I'm not sure how it ended, though. Then Esav right. falls on Yaakov's neck. Yes. Yes. Ah, it's all coming back to you yes. now. Yes. And then what happened? Excuse me, that is one interpretation. He bites him. But, and what happens then? And they wept. So they were reunited. They were reunited. But then Esau kind of moves on and whatever, but Yaakov uh, settles. Uh, separately. Yes. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> and he bit him. Unbelievable. Okay. So we so they are reconciled, but it's Yaakov who, who settles down in the family territory. Because he's, Esau's in Seir, right? He's Edom. He's going to become the Edomites. Right, the father of the Edomites. And who are the Edomites, the, the ancestors of? The Romans. Okay. We good? All right. So here we have another interesting tangled bit of Hebrew. At 17 years of age, Haya Ro'eh. He was, meaning Yosef, Haya Ro'eh was a shepherd. But here's an interesting phrase put after ro'eh, after shepherd. He was a ro'eh et echav. Et is a pointing word. And et, whatever comes after et, is the direct object. Right? So et is a pointing word. And what does it point to? What comes after et? His brothers. So he was a shepherd of his brothers? That doesn't make any sense, particularly given what happens next. He's among the youngest, and we know they have flocks. So we know they're shepherding actual, like, they're real shepherds, right? This is not a a euphemism, right? Were they shepherding again? (laughs) Yeah, we had a math teacher, Dr. Lamb, and they would always go, Amy, do it. Do it when he would come in the classroom. <laughs> All right, so he is so he is the roet echav of his brothers. So no, Batson with the sheep with the flocks, the hunar, and he's a youth. So there's all this kind of tangled. This could have been a lot clearer in Hebrew, even in Hebrew. Sometimes it's it's because Hebrew is hard to translate into English. Not the case. This could have been said by Torah a lot clearer, even in Hebrew. So some, some commentators want to translate this to mean he's kind of an assistant to his brothers. He aids his brothers. But that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense either, given like what, what we see again when he's not with them, right? So, remember? Say more. That he's going to eventually shepherd his brothers. Okay, lovely. So Mehmet's got Torah prophesying here. <laughs> All right. If they had used the word four instead of two, that would have made a difference. Right. This et is the problem. This indirect object indicate, this direct object indicator word makes it 
bizarre that Echav comes next. His brothers comes next. Okay. Well, this translation says with his brothers. Right, because they don't know what equal, to do. Equal. <laughs> they don't know what to do with the Hebrew. Translators have to give you a version that makes some kind of sense in English, but it means they have to torture the Hebrew. They have to mangle the Hebrew to do that, Sheldon. Uh, where's Leah's son? Yeah. Why is he just shepherding the other two wives? Okay. So, so, okay, yeah, let, let's, let's go there now. So, so some translators want to say that he's a helper, right, to the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. How have they been referred to before, Bilhah and Zilpah? Is that Rachel and Leah? They have been referred to as handmaids. Now they are referred to as Neshe Aviv, the wives of his father. What might this mean? They got married. They got married. <laughs> what does that mean for Bilha and Zilpah? A step up. It's a change of status. Possibly because Rachel and Leah are dead. After the death of their mistresses, each of the handmaids marries the patriarch. So not in their wives' not in their mistress's lifetime, but once they're dead, they've each given children to Yaakov, possibly a change in status for them. It's a shame we don't use use that word anymore, handmaids. Right, right. But it it starts here. All right. Hollywood has nothing on Torah, I'm telling you right now. So So he's with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Why? Why is he hanging out with them? Well, they're the younger. They are the younger kids. The older kids hate him. Right? The older, the children of Leah in particular. Why would the children of Leah hate him more than other people? Because he didn't love their mother. That's exactly right. Their mother was unloved by Yaakov. And who did did Yaakov love? Rachel. Rachel. Who is the son of Rachel? Yosef. Okay. And Benjamin, but they don't hate Benjamin. Are you saying this is a dysfunctional family? What? <laughs> In Torah? <laughs> Our ancestor stories? What bird? What chutzpah? Okay, so he's hanging out with the kids of Bilhah and Zilpah, the younger sons. Now here we have another issue. And Yosef brought bad reports of them to their father. Bad reports of whom? Could be Bilhan Zilpah. That wouldn't make a ton of sense. Their sons. But that's not who turns on him later. The older kids turn. The older kids turn on him. So it's possible he's bringing bad reports of all of them. We don't know. I just read a whole article on this sentence. So for whatever reason, I mean, but the commentators are trying to deal with who's he reporting on. Do Bilhah and Zilpah's kids get a break? Well, if so, they don't stand up for him later. Right. Or is he reporting, is he telling tales on all of them? We don't know. But they're, but, they're very young. They're not going to stand up for him. They're not going to have any standing. With the older brothers? With the older brothers. Right. But they don't even try, right? 
Okay. It's also interesting, I think the verb tense would bring as opposed to brought. So this is something that happened from time to time. Imperfect. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so that is a translation issue. So some commentators want to say this was habitual. Yes. So they put it. He would. Right. Um, but it can say that, or it can be just, and he reported on them. Or maybe in a particular instance. Like he saw them do something and he ran home, right? All right. So Yaakov and Yisrael are used interchangeably throughout this story. Okay? So verse 3 is the Yisrael. So this is the disjunctive vav. Don't read it and Israel. But Israel loved Yosef, Mikolbanov, of all his sons. Right, so this is a disjunctive of to let us know something is being set apart. Something is is exceptional here, and that is that Israel loved Yosef in a way that is exceptional in comparison to how he loved his other sons. Kiven zukunim, who? Because he is the son of his agedness. Right, the asolok tonet pasim, and he made for him. Uh, Kutonet pasim. We don't know exactly how to translate kutonet pasim. We don't know exactly what this means. We do see it in a Ugaritic list of items that were in a caravan um, and given as gifts. And one of them is a kutonet pas. We don't know what it means. All we can look at is some ancient art to and how Semitic peoples are dressed in those frescoes uh, and murals and stuff to try to guess at what this might be. It seems to be um, a tunic, so it's the outer garment one wears. There's some suggestion that it is ankle length. Um, This word is used uh, to describe, uh, as my notes tell me, in Samuel, so it's the only other place we see Ketonet Pasim, um, in 2 Samuel, the garment is mentioned as the distinctive dress of virgin daughters of royalty. I don't know how helpful that is <laughs> to us, given right that, that this is for Yosef. What do they call the, the little tunic that boys wear? Something talit katon? So that, that is about being a talit. That is about being a carrier for the fringes. Okay. That is not, this is clothing. The word, the root, katan, it's not related. Katan, katan, small. Okay. Okay. Little, as opposed to the big one. Thank you. Okay. So So this is the outer garment. What we do know from the fact that it's mentioned is it seems to be a special one, right, that's made for Yosef, something that marks his status as the favored son of the patriarch. Really? Yes, Carol, yeah. really. Um, so, so, it does not say colors. It does not say colors. Broadway fans, one and all. It doesn't, yeah, exactly, it does not say colors. Um, it's translated here, it's colors. Because that's how they're translating pasim. 
the plural pasim. Some people say, uh, from some of these depictions, it looks like it might be little pieces of fabric. So if they're different fabrics, then it would be different colors, something like quilt or design or patchwork. Some, uh, some commentators in the medieval period uh, uh, defined it as striped. Yeah, that's, that's so don't know. Um, and we have no, we have no photographs. So all we have are these. All we have are these paintings, right? So pasim could mean technicolored, but I don't know. All right. So vayiru echav, and so when his brothers see, like we know what happens with right seeing, right? Some, something's going to happen because they see. Um, that he loved him more than the others, right? They hated him. They hated him so much. They weren't able to speak in peace. Right? So you, if you ask after how, if you want to know how Mehmet is, you ask after his shalom. I would ask Sarah, tell me about the shalom of Mehmet. That's how I ask, how is he? You ask after his shalom. Is shalom meaning peace or shalom meaning wholeness? Mm-hmm. Both, either. So it, it seems to be bigger than either, but I think the implication of wholeness is how's he doing? Yeah. Right? If somebody's got it together, he's, his shalom is good. Throughout these uh, sentences we read so far, Look at the difference translation can make in your interpretation of the entire story. Let's eat grandma or let's eat grandma, right? Look at the question. It makes a huge difference. Throughout the Torah, which is the meat of a lot of discussion. Right. All right. So they couldn't even speak to, you know, they, they, they didn't care about him, essentially. And they, they couldn't even fake it. Right, they just couldn't even talk to him. They're like, ugh, here he comes, right? The, the brat. Like Sam Levinson's, my brother was an only child. Right. All right. So go on. Okay. Once Joseph had a dream which he told to his brothers, and they hated him even more. <laughs> he said to them, hear this dream which I have dreamed. They were, <clears throat> there we were binding sheaves in the field when suddenly my sheaves stood up and remained upright. Then your sheaves gathered around and bowed low to my sheep. His brothers answered, Do you mean to reign over us? Do you mean to rule over us? And they hated him even more for his talk about his dreams. All right. So his dreams, plural. So is it, this isn't the only time, it seems, that he has a dream and then is stupid enough <laughs> to, tell to tell his brothers who can't even talk to him. They can't stand him. And he goes running to them and says, guess what? I, I had a dream and my sheaf was upright and your demon. But like, it's just, it's either so arrogant that he doesn't see it, he's that arrogant, or he's just a stupid 17-year-old. Dude, I had this dream. Like, so it's like, <laughs> we don't know, but in any case, it's obnoxious. Do you have, uh, for the brothers, you can imagine, this is completely obnoxious to them. Throw Joseph in a pit. <laughs> but ultimately, it's his dreams that help elevate him to. The, of course, what? That's a good story. Really of course. Okay, go. Uh, okay. 
He dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers, saying, Look, I have had another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And when he told it to his father and brothers, his father berated him. And what he said to him is this dream you have dreamed. Are we to come, I and your mother and your brothers, and bow low to you, low to you to the ground? So his brothers were wrought up at him, and his father kept the matter in mind. All right. So now Yaakov is not happy because 11 stars is one thing. But the sun and moon, who is that? Mom and dad. So now you're suggesting to the patriarch of the family who has absolute control over the life and death of every member of the clan, you're going to suggest that he's, like your vision is that he is going to bow to you. So I think on two counts, Yaakov is just affronted, but also he knows this is stupid. He knows this is maybe even dangerous that Yosef is talking like this, right? Out loud to everybody. As somebody who takes care of adolescents, I'll tell you that this is not unusual for an adolescent. And, and it's interesting that they don't blow it off, but they get ticked off. Right. So so he his frontal lobes, right, have not like come fully <laughs> online. And so he just kind of, you know, whatever. But they already are so disgusted with him that it's not just adolescent whatever to them, right? This, this is, a, this for them is, a, is insults. These are insults. Um, because, because even those of us who love our adolescents get annoyed with them, right? Really? We, <laughs> I know it's hard to believe. But, and it may be just that I have a short fuse. I don't know. But, um, right? So, because they can be obnoxious in their not thinking, right? And they say things and you're just like, do, do you hear yourself? Do you hear what you just said to me? Right? So it's like, really? Where's your survival instinct <laughs> right, right now? <laughs> so, um, so, so they can be irritating even if they don't mean it, but this seems to be particularly snotty, right? To be telling people who you know hate you already. Especially now the father. And, and to his father. And he's young. They're and he, older than him. Yeah. You don't speak, his, uh, exactly. you don't speak to your parents this way. Mm-hmm. It surprises me, though, that if you think it was, it's so common for us to think about how people have dreams and they try to interpret them. That it is so ancient that we actually recognize that dreams mean something. or We don't know what they mean, but we give them importance. Yeah, and so um, in the ancient world, right, dreams were in some ways a communication with the other world. They, was, they were very powerful. Um, right, Michael? Um, right? Dreams have always been, right, very important, right? Because they were understood to be communication with a different realm. And, and often they were the transmission of information from that realm. Shakespeare so suddenly. So, certainly I mean, now we it. see them as a transmission from our inner lives. But was that more, were they mad at him because that's what they thought he was thinking, oh, that's what you really think about us, or was it that they thought he was reaching from another realm, some divine or other world? I, I think that's not the choice. I think that, and, and, and it doesn't have to be either or, but I think the choice is more, are they mad at him for what, for, for, for that's what they, he thinks of them, or because he's telling them, 
Right, right, you know, and, and it doesn't have to be either or. Because um, even if it is information from another realm, you're going to tell them that? Why would you tell me that? Like, what, you know, like, Maybe so. Maybe it could be another reason. If, he, if a kid is feeling hated, not an adolescent, in their naive thinking, Maybe that he's going to incur, wow, you are somebody. Maybe he's asking for them to respect them. Look at the kind of dreams I have. Yeah, you right. Know, so necessarily have to be trying to shift their, them. their if, if understanding. If it was a dream at all, it could be a narcissistic projection. Because people say they have dreams. And it's their, their, their waking hours. It doesn't say they're just sleeping. They yeah, all these shrinks in the room. Yes. I know, right? Another shrink, yes. What would you like to say, Mark? If a dream like that was presented to you that patient, the first thought would be that this is a dream of edible victory. That this is a dream of what? Edible victory. Edible victory, okay. Joseph is in essence saying with these dreams that he sees himself as very special. Right, narcissistic projections are irritating, aren't they? They're so irritating. And the people who do it, trying to think of one, um, the people who do it constantly, right, and in your face, right, and, and you just want to go, uh, and, and, there, and you know there's nothing you can do because they're delusional or they're acting out of their wish for you to see them, you know, how you see yourself or your fantasy. And it's so irritating. So let's say it's genuine, it's irritating. Let's say it's a narcissistic whatever, it's irritating. Let's say it's an Oedipal project, it's irritating. Right? They're, they're totally irritated. Uh, all we meant to come to us is lousy dream, Joseph, with the expert dreamer, Daniel. Um, actually, Yosef is an expert dreamer well, and dream interpreter, because this comes true. <laughs> They're accurate. <laughs> but nobody else could interpret Pharaoh's dream, only Yosef. Right? So he so Torah Torah presents him as a master dreamer. Alright, so because however irritating this is, it's true. <laughs> He's going to rule over his brothers, right? But what's interesting is that fantasy. That projection, that whatever you want to call it, an actual dream, an actual vision, an actual communication from the next, whatever you want to call it, it's, it's him saying it that sets up the circumstances for him to become the master dream interpreter. And it's what sets in motion the actions and the, the, the whatever that's going to lead to him being the prince of Egypt and ruling over his brothers. If he didn't tell them these dreams, right. it would not have set in motion right. the things that were necessary to happen for him to be able 
to rule over them. Their action. So, so the Torah is saying very clearly, right, that he these things have to happen in order for Yosef to not only rule over his brothers. What does he actually do? Is it for him at the end about ruling over his brothers? What does he say it's about his whole story? About saving them. He saves their lives. They're starving. He doesn't rule over them. At the end of our story, he doesn't care about that. Or maybe he does. I don't know. He's, he, he says his whole story has been about being put in a position to save his family. All right. Sorry. I cut somebody off. When he meets with his brothers, finally, he says that, basically. Yes. He says, you know, this was all, what you did was all, God made this all happen. It was supposed to happen. Thank heavens you did it. Right. Exactly. Which maybe he was telling the truth and maybe he was lying just to be... Okay, we're not going there. Okay. But I am, I just ordered a book by Aviva Zornberg, you know, one of my favorite teachers uh, and, and sources. And uh, it's, there's a, it's a collection that she has about, all my shrinks are going to love this, about kind of the under, to, you know, the, the subconscious under whatever of Torah of these stories. And one of them is an article uh, in that collection entitled, Does Joseph Hate Us? Which is a line, right, from the end of the story. They're afraid Joseph hates them, even though he said what he said. They, they, don't, they think maybe he's not telling it. So it's this whole subconscious, how does forgiveness sometimes get in the way of healing a relationship? I can't wait to read it and bring it to all the shrinks in the room. All right. They're going to have a field day that day. All right. So his bro, where are we? Twelve. Thank you. One time when his brothers had gone to pasture their father's flock at Shechem, Israel said to Joseph, Your brothers are pasturing at Shechem. Come, I will send you to them. He answered, Hineni, I am ready. And he told him, Go and see how your brothers are and how the flocks are faring, and bring me back word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron. When he reached Shechem, a man came upon him wandering in the fields. The man asked him, What are you looking for? He answered, I'm looking for my brothers. Could you tell me where they are pasturing? The man said, they have gone from here, for I heard them say, let's go to Dota. So Joseph followed his brothers and found them at Dota. Okay, so his father, right? The boys are out pasturing the flocks at Shechem. Uh, And why is not Joseph with them? Why is he not? Flocking. (laughs) So, everybody has a job, don't they? And the father said, "You better go. Don't catch up." Exactly. So possibly Yosef is so favored that he is exempt from the work, from the chores. Right? So they're working, and you have to take, if you're a semi-nomadic pastoralist, you have to take the sheep where there's food. And that's seasonal. So they they are taking the flocks and hanging out at Shechem, right, where there seems to be pasturage, right? And so Yisrael says to Yosef, your brothers are pasturing at Shechem, I'm going to send you to them. And Yosef says, 
when you are summoned by the authority, what is the correct response? Hienani. I'm here. I'm ready. What do you need of me? And he says, go see about the shalom of your brothers and how the flocks are and bring me back word. Okay. Is Yaakov just stupid? Like what, right? Like he's sending Yosef essentially to spy. Right. How has that fared for Yosef till now? No. Does Yaakov not know that they hate him? But he can't say no. So you have to wonder what's up with Yaakov. Why is he sending Yosef to go spy on the brothers and bring back, like, what? Alone. Alone. Is it to teach him a lesson? No. All right. He's what? Uh, Joseph is the only one Yaakov trusts. Right. But we have to wonder a little bit, right, about him setting him, right, his judgment as a father right now, right? We have to wonder a little bit, right, about that. Okay. Um, so. dangerous. All right. So he's, he's going on the way, Shema. He's heading towards Shem. Vayim Ehu Ish. <laughs> and on his way, Vayim Ehu, and he was found by an Ish. ish. Where's the last time we encountered an Ish, Bert? Yaakov. Yaakov, who is at the Yavok, right? About to, to meet Esav. And he, an Ish, right? Approaches him, and that is the wrestling match. He encounters him as an Ish. It's only later that we know he understands this as an encounter with the divine. Um, it's an Ish. Yosef, alone, out there in the world, is encountered by an Ish. This should be a red flag for us. Dun, 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 dun. Right? Something, something's going to happen if there's an Ish. <laughs> Something's gonna happen. How is Ish? How is Ish? Yes, what but when you see, but when you see man, right. a guy, one of our patriarchs, by himself encountering an Ish, we all have to go. Okay, stop. <laughs> what? What's happening? Right. So, what happens? What does this Ish do? Bikine. Um, right. So, Vayish Alehu Ha'ish, and the Ish asks him, Matibakish, what are you? What are you seeking? What are you looking for? To vacation is to request, right? You know, what, what, are, what are you after? Is an ish a menacing ghost? No, it's a man. Ish means man, okay. person. Vayomer et anochi I'm looking for my brothers. That's what I'm mivakeshing. Hagida nali efohem. Tell me, please. Where are they? Hem roim. Ephohem roim. Where are they, the shepherds? Vayomer ha'ish. And the man says, Nas'u kishamati omrim neocha detonit. I've heard they left. And I heard them say they were going towards Dotan. So, Yosef follows them and finds them at Dotan. All right. 
Peter Pitzala spent an entire afternoon with us on this one sentence of Torah. Right? Because who is the Ish? And how does the Ish know Yosef's looking for something? And what does he care? Why does the Ish approach Yosef? Is Yosef distressed? Is Yosef doing like this? (laughs) So that the Ish asks, what is it you seek, my son? Right, so... Is he just, is, is he communicating in some way that he's lost? We don't know. Why the Ish cares what's up with Yosef? We don't know. But of course we know. He's an Ish. <laughs> of course, of course. Right? Torah is telling us this is, right? This is not simply an episode of just you run into somebody and they say, oh yeah, go over there towards it, right? This is an encounter with somebody who's going to now, the whole story pivots on this encounter. Because what if the Ish was like, just know. going about his business? Like, what, what if the Ish didn't talk to Yosef? How does the Ish know who Yosef's brothers are? <laughs> and why is the Ish there in the first place? And why is the Ish there in the first place? What's the Ish doing? Yeah. Yeah. So he's found by an Ish. Is the Ish looking for him? Is this the sort of one of those angels? Of course! Of course! Of course! It has to be that this is a moment of pivot that there just happens to be an Ish. Right? So you have to have the Ish, don't we? We remember the Yaakov and the ladder and the well. Wait, there has to be an ish. It has to be because otherwise he would just walk yeah, right. and say, I'm sorry they weren't there. But Mehmet. his brothers could have been there. Mehmet. And he wouldn't and have had to go true. anywhere else. I'm, I'm, I'm awesome. wondering when the Torah refers to Jacob as Jacob and when it refers to Sometimes it's meaningful. Yeah. Here the commentators are like, they don't read a lot. They don't. I don't know why, but you can. But, you know, is this Yisrael? Because Yisrael is the one that got his name changed after he encountered an Ish? Could be. So, you know, I would love to have you diagram this story and find where it's Yisrael, find where it's Yaakov, and what com- it comes immediately before or after and see if it's meaningful. So we'd have to see if that lines up. Right. Yeah, I'm struck that this, that these two sentences are unnecessary. You could yeah. just go to say, Correct. Uh, he wandered to, to the second place. But there's got to be something here because otherwise it's totally superfluous. Exactly. I mean, I think this is necessary this is this is critical right to the to the story because everything pivots from here what if he didn't know where they were Yosef never would have encountered them and the whole story wouldn't right so everything pivots I mean you could say that about any point in the story I suppose but but otherwise it's completely it doesn't need to be here the fact that it's here and the fact that it's an ish I just don't think we can ignore it and I think it's gorgeous I love that Torah is toying with us, yeah. right? Torah's going, here's an ish. <laughs> so because, of, because if we paused on it, it makes me notice the word looking for. So, right, so he's, he's in the gives us an insight into what's going on in his heart. In what way? Well, he could just be going to find his brothers because his dad told him that you're supposed to go find your brothers now. 
but by making him stop and have this moment, and this man is sort of asking him, what are you looking for? Like, what is your heart looking for? Ah, what are you looking for? This is where Rami Shapiro goes. Rabbi Rami Shapiro says, isn't that always the question that Ish has for us? What are you you seeking? And if you're seeking it, it means you think it's not here. And don't we do that all the time? Don't we go seeking peace, prosperity, happiness, success, whatever? We're always seeking it, and guess what? Right? Exactly. Exactly. All right. I want to push on because I want to get to... um, to this. Yeah, what is it, Judith? I was just thinking that Christians always say they are Christian. Buddhists are Buddhist. Hindus are Hindus, but we are Jew-ish. <laughs> we say we're Jews. Jew-ish. <laughs> no, that would be... Okay. Whatever. All right. Um, oh, you meant ish. Yes. Uh, okay. I was totally, totally missing... Jew-ish. Jewish. Oh my goodness. That was a we've, we've gone there. Okay. Uh, wow. Okay. Bert, take us, take they us through this next piece. They saw him from afar, and before he came close to them, they conspired to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes the dreamer. Come now. Let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we can say, A savage beast devoured him. We shall see what comes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard of it, he tried to save him from them. He said, let us not take his life. And Reuben went on, shed no blood, cast him into that pit out in the wilderness, but do not touch him yourselves, intending to save him from them and restore him to his father. When Joseph came up to his brothers, they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the ornamented tunic that he was wearing, and took him and cast him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. All right, go on just a little bit more. Then they sat down to a meal. Looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, their camels bearing gum, balm, and ladanum to be taken to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What do we gain by killing our brother and covering up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, but let us not do away with him ourselves. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh. His brothers agreed. When Midianite traders passed by, they pulled Joseph out of the pit. They sold Joseph for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites who brought Joseph to Egypt. Okay. So they see him coming a long way away. And before he even got close, they conspired to kill him. So they said to one another, here comes that dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. People used to murder people in the ancient world by pits so that they could dispose of the body. These are huge water cisterns that in the season of rain would gather all the flash floods that come down from the hills and it fills these huge cisterns that are carved into the sides of uh, the hill. Um, and they are very deep. They are often, um, what do you call it, to keep the water in? Plastered, right? You, you see them all over Israel. Those of us who have traveled Israel, another pit. So um, another water cistern. Ooh, <laughs> look at the ancient plaster. Right? So um, they're plastered to hold the water in, um, and they were huge and, and deep. So you would murder someone by a pit so that you could 
There's no evidence, right? You get rid of the body. So let's kill him. They're by a pit. Let's kill him, right? We can get rid of the body. But Reuven hears it. And this is, my translation's terrible. Let us not take his life. No. He says, we will not take his life. We will not. Ruvain is the eldest. Ruvain here is speaking with full authority and expects the brothers to listen to, to what he says. Now, he could be in a blind panic, right? But, he, but whatever's driving the way he speaks, he speaks with authority and is commanding them to not murder him. Do not shed blood, right? So we'll just throw him in a pit. Okay, so either Ruvain is part of it in that he's ready to be rid of Yosef, but doesn't want to incur blood guilt. He isn't going to actually tolerate them doing violence to him. They'll just leave him to die in a pit. Or... Um, and, and I think it's actually the or because of the sentence that says at 29, when Reuven returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he rends his clothing. So I think Reuven fully intends to rescue Yosef, to talk these guys off the ledge, to let them calm down, maybe wait till they fall asleep, right, and get Joseph out of the pit. Because he, when he goes off, he comes back, he fully expects to find Yosef in the pit. And, and doesn't, and then is very upset, right? So, um, so, so to me, it suggests that Reuven really doesn't, he really wants to restore the boy to his father. So it may not be anything about Yosef, it may be more about Yaakov. What, what did Reuven do recently to Yaakov? You probably don't remember this. But uh, he slept with his father's concubine. So it is, and Yaakov was livid. So it, because it's a challenge to his patriarchal authority. And so it's possible Ruvain is trying to get back into Yaakov's favor, into his good graces by coming home and saying, Dad, you won't believe what these idiots were about to do, but I handled it. I took care of it. I took care of Joseph, right? But so he, so they, so, but they, they listen in terms of they put him in the pit. He descends into the pit. This is going to happen over and over and over for Yosef. And each time he descends into the pit, what's going to happen? <laughs> he gets out, right? He, he, there's a, he descends and he rises. And every time he comes back up, every time he rises, there is a serious transformation in his status, right? He descends into the darkness. He descends into the depths. All of my psychologists and psychiatrists in the room, um, he descends into the dark. He descends down into the hole and comes up changed. Not necessarily better. He's gone from the favored, spoiled son. When he comes out of the pit, what is he? A slave. He's a slave when he comes out of the pit. He's lost everything. He has a new status. He has nothing. His status is you are nothing. You are property. That, that is a big transformation. 
So whatever, but, and, but, which is why it's the same letter in Hebrew, (laughs) and, but, that change of status means that everything that happens from that moment on is actually about Yosef and not about his father's favor. If we're ever going to have our achievements be ours and not look to our past or our authority figures to tell us who we are or or that we're fantastic or if we're ever going to really live into that as our own we have to break right with our dependency on the approval of whoever we establish as our authorities like being reborn. 100%. 100%, Sarah. It is about rebirth. It is about dying to what has been and, and starting something new. This is going to happen to him again and again. Right? He falls from grace at Potiphar's house and he's thrown into the jail. jail. Dungeon. The dungeon. And when he comes out of the dungeon and stands before Pharaoh... Right? He becomes the dream interpreter and, and rises to, right, the second only to Pharaoh in power in Egypt. So this is Yosef's story. This is the story of us. The Jews. The Jews. This is written by Jews. Actually, it's not. It's written by Israelites. But we are, this is our story. And we always read it close to Hanukkah. Yes. So we're always talking about the dark, right? And about a band of, you know, um, an insurgency against the massive Greek army by people who wanted to reassert their own right, right to self-determination. Yeah? Um, so it, it is not an accident, I don't think, uh, that the Yosef story continues to be what we read as we're approaching the dark. <coughs> Um, Why Mehmet. Why, 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 <laughs> Why the Ishmaelites? You want to tell me? Yishmael starts with a yud. Ish starts with an aleph. Um, Why the Ishmaelites? So clearly, this shows a time when the relationship between Israel and the Yishmaelites was fairly civil. So, it, so it's a story from a time when they were just a neighboring people. These are not the descendants of Ishmael? Yes, but, but they seem friendly. They sell Yosef to the Ishmaelites, but it's, there are other stories where we see that the Ishmaelites are enemies of Israel. That is not when this is said, apparently. But you can see this as, as a revenge of Ishmael and his descendants, and yet it, it's they that end up saving the Jewish people, the Israelites, in the future, so it's it's kind of a double-edged thing. Okay. Or uh, our future may depend on our, in the hands of our offerings. Always, right? Always in the Middle East, yes. So we're now talking about the patriarchal narratives. This is from Peter Pitzola's book, Our Father's Wells. He is talking about the patriarchal narratives as the shift to patriarchy and how these stories serve the shift to patriarchy, right? All right. 
The very idea of a masculine deity, the great father, into whose being is arrogated all power, such that he is omnipotent, mirrors men's obsession with their potency. I knew y'all would love this. The, the world of men that this deity creates often appears created in his image. All right, go to, to the next bracket. These are the relationships of power, and one could say that God is the immense projection of men's abiding preoccupations with these relationships. So Pitsila is reading these stories as a patriarchal society creating its identity, and he's suggesting that the male omnipotent Yahweh figure is a projection of men's preoccupation with their power. So they create a God who's all-powerful. We've never had that before. This is the first time we have that. Ancient Israel. They, made, they moved to this. Before this, we've had, we've had a pantheon. Male gods fighting each other, and then the girl gods get in there and right throw a lightning bolt at the. So, there. Well, I guess that's Zeus, but whatever. Like Hera holds her own, right? So, this. So Pitsula is talking about these are the stories of the culture of the society that created an omnipotent singular male god. What does that say about that society? Well, if we look at the stories, it's talking about power, potency, and the people who write these stories and create this God are pretty preoccupied with that. Okay. Which I just find interesting. I find that very interesting. All right, so go to the right bottom where you see my line there. Immediately after this introduction, we are told that Joseph has two dreams. Through them, some energy enters his life and points him toward a distant eminence. In the first, he dreams he's in the fields with his brothers, blah, 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 blah. Turn it over. And, right, I've lost my, dang, he cut off my, my brackets. All right, uh, so just go down to these are dreams of power because we, we, we've heard about the dreams, so I didn't have that highlighted. These are dreams of power, right? So we're going back to this idea, right, of the preoccupation with power. These are dreams of power, and they provide us with our first inkling of the young man's extraordinary destiny. Already the one set apart from his brothers by his father's favoring love, the dreams hint at even wider spheres of power, natural and cosmic, in his dreams, Joseph is the center of a mandala, the hub around which systems revolve. His brothers say nothing about the meaning of the second dream, but correctly interpret the first as a political prophecy. Joseph is going to rule them. They are unable to see that it is also a dream about being bound, all of them, on some common field, and that it is also about feeding and service, reverence and circles. Right? So all they see, if you're talking about a people preoccupied with power, all they see is that there's going to be a power differential between them and Yosef. What they miss, Peter Pitzler is suggesting, is that their futures are intertwined. They are part of the same system. And that's not going to change. 
These dreams of Joseph hint at his purpose, though at the time he can have no idea of the arduous responsibility that purpose will exact from him. Welcome to human life. (laughs) These dreams represent the sum total of Joseph's vocational call. They are figments of his imagination, gifts of imagination, capital I, from which he will compose a life. These dreams contain no direct apprehension of God, right? So Yaakov at least understood this as coming from God, which on some level might be a bit comforting. Maybe not. I don't know. But Joseph does not apprehend this as being connected in any way to the divine right now. Unlike Abraham's dreams, Joseph's guarantee no future, no promised land. They hint at power, but they are, after all, only dreams, full of the ambiguity of dreams. I love this line. It requires a certain courage to follow such dreams, to enter them, to live them out. It will be lonely. It takes courage to enter those dreams to live them out. It will be lonely. Any one of us who's lived into any vision we've ever had, right, knows the courage that that takes and knows that it's going to be lonely. So he goes on to talk about purpose. It's a beautiful paragraph that you should read at home. I want to close us out, though. Um, So let's go to the brackets on the right. Every now and then I think I know what this person meant, what he's talking about. Some men and women seem to understand this also. Our dreams of power and the process of their fulfillment gives us a path through the entanglements of opportunity and ambition, some sense of our necessity. So he talks about we all need to feel that we are necessary, right? That, that, our, that the meaning and purpose in our lives comes from feeling that we are necessary not just in a role right of you know loving our children but it's not enough we need to feel that we have a purpose that we're necessary mm-hmm. for men and for men such dreams are supremely important i see them as our dream babies mysteriously seated in the dark place we call the unconscious or the imagination the realm of soul these babies grow into our waking conscious lives Such dreams are linked to our creativity, to our fate, and ultimately to our death. I have a dream, said Martin Luther King Jr., and his life and his death were part of that dream story. He let himself be led by his dreams, and in his dreams he found his fate. Such dreams have the power to dream us. They are like promises. They invite us to keep some rendezvous. In our dream beginnings are our mortal ends. Right? Love it. No idea what it means. (laughs) But it sounds really, really important. So he's like Zornberg for me sometimes, you know, or Heschel. It's like, that is one of the most profound things I have ever heard. No idea what that means. Right? But I also love this uh, Yates, this quote from Yates, like, in dreams begins responsibility. Like, once you dream it, right, now you have a responsibility to that vision, to that dream. If you never dream it, 
you can stay ignorant to some extent, right? Or uninvolved to some extent. Once you dream it, once it's your vision, you have a certain responsibility. That's positive or negative. Yes, both. Right? Responsibility is usually both. Right? Well, but some dreamers have very dark dreams. I'm thinking of Charles Manson. Okay, so (laughs) I think Pitsula, like our good doctors in the room, would probably make a distinction between psychosis and dreams or vision. So while, while I, I get what you're saying, I do think Manson is the kind of case of, that, I mean, that's, that's an illness, right, that, that turns what happens in the brain into something really ugly. But, but, but I will say, yes, there are people who are dreamers, but what they dream is really... It's not, it's not the bright side of what's possible. It's that they're very aware of the dark side and wind up very depressed, right? They, I think there are plenty of visionaries who, who, I mean, I think about people who work in climate change right now. They cannot be happy people. Like the people who really work on that issue all the time, who are visionaries and dreamers about that issue, they cannot be happy people right now. Because what their vision they, they have to, in order to work that hard on behalf of turning the ship, they have to have a very clear vision of where we're headed. And that is a terrifying picture to have to live in, right? And the responsibility that comes once you have that vision, the responsibilities are huge, right? Some of us just don't go there. <laughs> just don't, right? Or I go there a little bit, right? Right, when I'm able, but... But the people who live there, or people who like—I I think about therapist, like people who are therapists to children who have been—it you know, was just like you know, like some people they are exposed constantly to. Okay, and their vision, of course, is to make it better and to heal and all of that, and that's wonderful. But I think the people who live in that stuff, many of them, you know, it's just—it's super hard. All right, turn turn it over. The paragraph that begins, Joseph tells both of these dreams to his brothers. Yeah? That paragraph? It's on the single-sided one. Oh. Right? So back to that question of what are his motives, right? That we were talking about why he shares his dreams. So there's a midrash um, that, I mean, he's talking about his midrash. You go to my underline. But in my midrash of his motives, I hear him tell that he reveals these dreams because he must. They contain his necessity. Like Martin Luther King's dreams, they impel him toward his destiny, and the consequences of their being told are intrinsic to their realization. Right? We said this earlier, essentially. Right? The consequences of him telling his dreams is intrinsic to those dreams being realized. It can't happen. The fulfillment of the dreams can't happen until he shares the dreams out loud. Because in they contain his necessity. Yeah? Um, So he is, in in the mind of Peter Pitsula, these these dreams are, are what makes Yosef necessary. In the sharing of them, comes the setting in motion of those things that will allow them to be fulfilled. And 
the fact he, he's going to start, Pitzala starts with where we are with Yosef right now, is that the first real steps that Yosef will take creating his own destiny, not tying it to his father, comes at the hands of murderous brothers. Right? That, that, the rupture that's going to come from that murderous intent, that is what sets him on the path. And it is so often the case, is it not, that it's the pain caused by right, the rejection of those closest to us, those we love the most, those who we are so tangled up with, it is the betrayal or the rejection or whatever or uh, the being pushed out of the nestness right, of those closest to us that begins in many ways our exploration of what is our unique path, what is our unique um, necessity. And this is the story we read at Hanukkah. This is the story, if you ask me, of the Jewish people. He came real close. <laughs> he came super close. And it wasn't easy. And it's going to happen again and again and again and again. But he rises every time. And every time he figures out what that descent and what that rise is about. And at the end of our story, he says, I understand that this was all God's plan for me to serve my purpose and for me to be able to help other people it's, it's out of that service. The very people who, th who threaten to annihilate me are the ones I'm now going to feed and save out of my having fulfilled my own unique destiny. Let that be our story, people. Let that be our experience of suffering and of anti-Semitism and of the threat of annihilation that's still with us. Let that be our story, that we take our place, we fulfill our unique destiny as the Jewish people, and when we take that seriously, we are in a position to help other people, to feed other people who do not have access to what they need to fulfill their own unique destinies. Good job, us. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.